Sometimes it seems the Apache get all the attention. Think about it. If asked to name one famous Amerindian from Arizona history, where does your mind go? Odds are the first name that popped into your head was Geronimo, maybe followed by Cochise and Mangus Coloradus as a third. Apache all. The centuries-long struggle to first live alongside, then defeat the great boogeymen of Arizona, make them loom large in the public consciousness. But during our short time together, we have covered a number of different revolts and uprisings by determined tribes seeking to throw off the Spanish, Mexican, and American yoke. There was the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, the Pima Revolt of 1751, the Yuma Massacre by the Quechins in 1781, and the Papago War in the 1840s. Each had a long-lasting impact in its own way, but are sometimes lost among all the many, many conflicts with the Apache. And today, I want to add one more conflict to that list. A short, bloody skirmish that set northern Arizona ablaze in the late 1860s and made its combatants temporarily more feared than the Apache themselves. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 56, The Wallapai War. Welcome back, everyone. Since last week was a look at the politics and proceedings of all those Americans moving into Arizona, the pendulum must inevitably swing back the other way toward all the natives who weren't that happy about all those Americans moving into Arizona. But believe it or not, we are not going to talk about Cochise or the Apache at all today because they were by no means the only people who reached the point where lashing out at all these white interlopers became a necessity. And for that, it is time to talk about the pie. Okay, let me please once again remind you of my lack of qualifications as an ethnologist, so forgive me if what I'm about to say is oversimplified and brief. The Pai are a related group of people who live in north-central and northwestern Arizona and speak a branch of the Quechan language. I will note here that Pai simply means people. And that's very similar to many tribes across the state, such as the Navajo, Apache, Hopi, Odom, and others, whose native names for themselves simply means people. These native names are also sometimes modified by other words to differentiate related tribes, which is why we have the Akamel Odom, or river people, and Tahono Odom, or the desert people. The same thing holds true for the Pai. For example, we have the Wallapai, who will be our main focus in just a second. The Walla part contains the words for pine trees, making them the people of the tall pines. Then we have the Havasupai, which translates to people of the blue-green water. 
which if you've ever been to Havasupai and the absolutely stunning Havasu Falls in the Grand Canyon, you know is a pretty darn accurate description. Side note, I've had the fortune to go down to Havasu Falls, and I have to say, if there are any outdoors enthusiasts listening, put that place on your must-see list for the state. Now, let's take the Wallapai and Havasupai and run just a quick background check. They occupied a wide swatch of land stretching as far north as the Grand Canyon, as far south as the Bradshaw Mountains, as far east as the San Francisco Peaks, and even as far west as the Colorado River. The first written mention of them comes back from Father Francisco Garces in 1776, while he was on his way for his appointed destiny of failing to convert the Hopi. Now, the Spanish called these tribes together the Cocinas, or the Cojoninas. Later, the Pai would be encountered by white trappers in the early 1800s, and by some of the explorers, Sitgreaves, Bill, and Whipple, we've already talked about who are trying to find a good route across northern Arizona to California. Now, the Americans would be the ones that arbitrarily divided them into the Wallapai and Havasupai distinctions, because if there was one thing 19th century Americans were really bad at, it was understanding the complex internal structures of native tribes. Also, spelling. For example, Wallapai is spelled as it would be pronounced in Spanish, so H-U-A-L-A-P-A-I. But early state historian Thomas Farish uses a lot of first-hand sources that almost universally spell the name W-A-L-L-A-P-A-I. That's not really here nor there, but I just find it funny. Anyway, by the mid-1860s, there were three major subgroups of the Pi, which were further divided into 13 bands comprised of a handful of families each. Nonetheless, this disparate group living across a wide swath of Arizona all considered themselves one people, the Pi. I will round out our look at the Pi by briefly mentioning the Yavapai, the eponym for the county in west-central Arizona. This tribe, whose name translates to People of the Sun, are distantly related to the Wallapai and Havasupai. However, they were antagonistic towards the Pi, whose name for them simply means the enemy. Yavapai territory, stretching from the Salt River Canyon all the way to the Bradshaw Mountains, meant a lot of contact with the Tonto Apache, and so the Yavapai adopted many cultural cues from them. In fact, in many contemporary sources from the mid to late 1800s, the authors don't bother to distinguish that much between Yavapai and Apache. The only distinction they usually make is that of alive or dead, and as you are well aware by now, they greatly preferred the latter. But since the name of this episode is the Wallapai War, I guess we should dive into the conflict that would break out in the latter half of the 1860s. Ultimately, the source of the conflict is the same as the majority of times native tribes clashed violently with Europeans and or Americans. That is to say, the new arrivals would find some shiny rocks, said shiny rocks would be in a tribe's traditional territory, 
more arrivals would come searching for the shiny rocks, and then a volatile mixture of cultural biases and misunderstandings would have everyone at each other's throats. It doesn't help at all that the Pies in particular had their own origin story featuring a mythic figure called, and I apologize in advance for most likely butchering this, Judaba Ha. In the telling of state historian Thomas Sheridan, Judaba Ha spoke to the first Pies and said, quote, Here is the land where you will live. Go to the places where you find water. Mark off your land and live by the water. Name these places. End quote. Now, this is never directly said to be a cause of the coming conflict, but just imagine what happens if those instructions are part of your cultural makeup, and then American miners start swarming in, and the leaders of these new interlopers keep vocally saying that they want you all to move to a reservation of their choosing. The head of one of the Pi subgroups, named Cherim, sometimes spelled Sherim or Shroom, became alarmed by the sheer number of people moving into the greater Prescott area following the discovery of gold. According to Sheridan, Cherim instructed those under him to trade buckskins for Navajo blankets, which could then be traded to the Paiutes for guns that had come from Mormon settlers, who had their own particular stance when it came to Indian affairs. Rather than raiding and animal stealing to get back at the invaders like so many tribes across Arizona, Cherim set about to deliberately build up his people's supplies of arms and ammunition for a coming conflict. In 1864, William H. Hardy, the businessman who had established Hardyville on the Colorado River, also built a toll road that connected Prescott with Hardyville, Bullhead City, Fort Mojave, and other routes on the upper Colorado River. Now, this was a very smart business move and served the American settlers great but it had one giant downside. It ran right through Wallapai territory. Though one source said that Hardy negotiated with the tribe to allow this, having this open route for the white invaders across their land had to be one of the many reasons Cherim was currently stockpiling weapons. The conflict that he could clearly see coming almost erupted in 1865. In April of that year, some settlers who were now living in Wallapai territory, one source goes so far as to call them squatters, while all sources make sure to point out that they were drunk, shot and killed a Wallapai chief named Anasa. This act so enraged the Wallapai that they basically cut off the toll road, making sure that no wagon that dared try to make the trip arrived safely. Here, Hardy stepped in again. Ever the businessman, he tried some dollar diplomacy to de-escalate the conflict. On July 15, 1865, he was able to have Cherim and two other Pi leaders sign a treaty to end the hostilities in exchange for goods worth roughly $150. The chiefs were even given slips of paper showing that they had made an agreement with Hardy, which will actually come into play here in a second. This bit of diplomacy worked. If tensions didn't disappear outright, they certainly relaxed. The road reopened and everyone went about their business. Things were calm enough that acting Governor Richard C. McCormick in that June 1865 letter we went over a couple weeks ago 
lumped the Wallapais in with all the tribes that were perfectly friendly and would be on a reservation just any day now. However, considering that McCormick wrote this even before the final treaty between Hardy and the Wallapai had been signed, it's just another testament to how many grains of salt you have to take with McCormick's words. It turned out the peace Hardy worked so hard to obtain only lasted nine months. What happened? Well, let's unpack it. Like all stories about these types of conflicts, there are a few different viewpoints. Now, according to a newspaper article in the Daily Miner, which, remember, is McCormick's newspaper, so keep your salt handy, a cabin along the toll road to Fort Mojave at a spot called The Willows burned to the ground. The cabin belonged to a man named Edward Clower, who had previously lived in Prescott. According to the article, Clower had lost his horses a couple days beforehand and had enlisted a Wallapai man to help him hunt them down. It's said that on the night of March 30th, 1865, Clower let this Wallapai sleep in his cabin. And that just happens to be the same night that the cabin burned to the ground, with Clower inside of it. The newspaper article then gets into very speculative territory, saying that the prevailing suspicion is that the Wallapai man killed Clower and burned his cabin to cover his tracks. As uh, evidence of these claims, the article mentions that this particular Wallapai had not been found, alive or dead. It also mentions that the guns and provisions from the cabin were supposedly missing. I don't know about you, but that seems flimsy at best. And again, I'm not entirely sure how much stock I take in McCormick's reporting of the incident. However, it does appear that the death of Clower and the burning of his cabin were taken as something of a sign that the Wallapai were gearing up for hostilities again. What happens next is just another entry in the long, sad list of misunderstandings and murders that really encapsulate American Amerindian interactions. Because just a few days after Clower's death, a group of Americans were approached at Bill's Spring by a Wallapai leader named Waba Yuma. Now, Waba Yuma had been one of those two other Wallapai leaders who had signed the treaty with Hardy along with Cherum just nine months beforehand. And just as a random aside, he was the head of a Pai subgroup called simply the Yavapai Fighters. I just love that their name boiled down to we fight these other guys. Anyway, this is where we start getting into various accounts of what happened. Some say that Wabayuma met with the Americans specifically to show his copy of Hardy's treaty. You know, hey guys, I know we've had our differences in the past, but I made an agreement with Hardy that I won't interrupt trade and we can all be friends, so we cool? However, the man leading the American party, Sam Miller, offers up a different version. Miller, who was a freighter by trade and had been a member of the Walker Party in 1863, will actually go on to be a very prominent person in Prescott and died in the town in 1909. According to Miller's account, he and his company had made it to Bill's Springs, but he was leery about the Wallapai and their disposition, what with the horizon being full of what he terms quote-unquote red devils. That's when Wabayuma rode into camp with some of his men and then brazenly asked for a treaty, 
or in other words, that the group give him horses, mules, and flour. There seems to have been some arguing back and forth and a consultation among the Americans. Finally, instead of making such a treaty, Miller pulled out his rifle and shot Wabayuma through the lungs, which, in his account, is said to have created a hole the size of a fist in the man's chest. Miller justified his actions by saying that he was certain that even if he had given in to the haughty Wallapai's demands for a treaty, he and his men would have been massacred anyway. Still, it doesn't stop a lot of historians from saying that what Miller did was cold-blooded murder. And I'm not editorializing there. More than one source actually say that the Wallapai leader was shot in cold blood. Even McCormick's write-up in the Daily Miner is a little perturbed by the shooting, writing that even though the Wallapai may have been acting strange of late and that Clower's death had to be avenged, there was a better way to go about it. At the very least, the article argues, he should have been captured and given a chance to prove his innocence. As it was, the death of Wabayuma would only aggravate the Wallapai and they would close down the trade roads once again. McClintock wrote, quote, We think the conclusion that the tribe wished to wage war with the whites is premature, and that the killing of Wabayuma will prove an unprofitable step. End quote. McCormick had no idea how right he was. Sheridan said of the death of Wabayuma that it was, quote, the spark that ignited the tinder, end quote. Farish would write, quote, the result was very disastrous as far as the Americans were concerned, for the Wallapai and all of the tribes of the Colorado River immediately went upon the warpath, and that portion of Arizona was the scene of much bloodshed for many years thereafter. End quote. The conflict Cherm had been preparing for had now come. The time for treaties had ended. It was time to use that stockpile he had been collecting. Just as you would expect, the angry Wallapai once again cut off the trade roads running through their territory, and then began to swarm like angry bees. Brevet Lieutenant Colonel W. Redwood Price out of Fort Mojave estimated their numbers to be about 1,500, with 400 to 500 of that being fighting men. After the roads were closed, this angry swarm of Wallapai began to attack traders and miners, especially those in the Black Mountains near the Colorado. The miners were either stoned to death inside of their own shafts, or their corpses were thrown there after they had been killed. Price and companies out of Fort Mojave and Fort Whipple retaliated, attacking pie settlements, burning wickiups, destroying cornfields, and capturing women and children. As part of this, members of the Mojave tribe joined in, ready to use the conflict as an excuse to give their traditional rivals a bloody nose. A total of 68 different rancherias were destroyed over the course of the war, which ran, depending on how you date it, into 1868 or 1869. As you might imagine, this was not a war of pitched battles. Much like every other Amerindian conflict we've discussed up to this point, the Wallapai were quite simply outmanned and outgunned. But Cherim quickly proved that he was an able and capable military leader. When he could choose the place of battle, where his men had the advantage, 
he could be an infuriating foe to fight. He thrice defended his home rancheria on the southeastern edge of the Serbit Mountains from invading American troops. During one such occasion, he and 50 men fought off a 27-man American company during a two-hour fight on October 7, 1867. A few months later, on January 14, 1868, Cherim and his men, armed with only 40 breech rifles and 20 muzzle loaders, repulsed two separate American attacks. Major Samuel Young wrote, quote, We'd been fighting our best for an hour and 25 minutes when Indians made their appearance on both flanks and I withdrew slowly from that vestibule of death, end quote. And because no good war story is complete without something like this, Cherim was actually struck by a bullet during this encounter, but he recovered and kept on fighting. And the Wallapai weren't strictly fighting a defensive war either. On May 30th, 1867, a force of some 250 Wallapai and Paiute under Cherim attacked Bill's Springs. They were repulsed and lost five men and only killed one American, but the sheer number gathered for the attack is impressive. In March of the next year, he and a group of 75 to 100 Wallapai attacked and killed a mail rider with his soldier escort. Over the course of the bloody two or three years that the Wallapai War dragged on, Cherim and his band earned a ferocious reputation among the white soldiers. Officers in Prescott reported that their men, quote, would rather fight five Apache than one Wallapai, end quote. Yeah, let that sink in for a moment. Cherim and the Wallapai would eventually be brought down by a combined force of logistics and that old destroyer of native armies, disease. Even though Americans always thought there were never enough soldiers in Arizona, there still turned out to be too many for the Wallapai to forever stand up against what the Daily Miner newspaper called the Grand Army of the Colorado. And then, over the course of the summer of 1868, the Pai were decimated by an epidemic of dysentery and whooping cough. On August 20th, 1868, a Wallapai leader named Leve Leve negotiated a truce on behalf of the tribe with Price. This is widely seen as the end of the short, bitter conflict. Though it was noted at the time that the Wallapai had ended the conflict not because they had been beaten, but because they were tired of war. In early 1869, Price would round up Leve Leve and the Wallapai under him and haul them across the Colorado River into California. As could be expected, Cherim did not really go along with this and continued to resist. On January 20th, he fought another two-hour battle, though he notified Price that his men were not shooting to kill. Finally, Cherim and his half-brother Charlie surrendered themselves as a condition of peace. The pair were treated as criminals, and army officers didn't even bother with a trial before ordering that they be sent to Angel Island in San Francisco Bay. Charlie would wind up spending time there before returning home convinced that his people needed to learn English, gain a formal education, and meet the Americans on their own terms. However, Cherim would only go along as far as Southern California, 
he actually twice escaped soldiers trying to send him into exile. Though eventually he did end up laying down his arms, he never would have to serve his time in San Francisco. Following the end of the conflict, Price enlisted Leve Leve and others to be scouts for the army's continuing campaigns against the Yavapai. Price even specifically requested that Cherim help in this endeavor, threatening to resume hostilities if he didn't. The Walpi leader ended up sending a few men to Price, but prudently decided not to go himself. The end of the war was not pretty. As I said, a good deal of the Wallapai were removed from their traditional lands, with somewhere between 400 and 600 being shepherded onto the newly created Colorado River Indian Reservation. But, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, this reservation didn't really get off to a good start, with disease, heat, and bad planting luck dogging everyone. Plus, it was inhabited mostly by the Mojave, who were traditional rivals of the Wallapai, so the arrangement, predictably, did not last too long. Many Wallapai who fled from the reservation began working for the American ranchers and miners who had moved into their lands, with Cherim becoming something of a work gang leader. He would continue to try and lead his people through the rest of the century. Their one victory, if you can even call it that, is that the federal government set aside 997,000 acres of what once had been the homeland to select Wallapai bands as a reservation for the tribe in 1883. I'll be honest, until I really started doing research for this podcast, I had never heard of the Wallapai War before, which is a shame. As I said, it seems that when it comes to the history of Arizona, the Apache and their continual raiding and resistance get all the press. Don't get me wrong, they certainly deserve it, as every single contemporary source cites them specifically as a white settler's worst nightmare. But other groups, like the Wallapai, deserve recognition too. Looking at the brief descriptions I have, despite how short it was, Cherim's war record might be on par with Cochise's. Just like the more famous leader to the south, he was able to cobble together an alliance that could recruit multiple hundreds of Pai and Paiute. He also ran an effective guerrilla campaign, being able to hold off U.S. soldiers time and time again. And his people fought just as hard for their homeland as any Apache. While you can make the argument that any armed resistance was a non-starter due to the lack of proper supplies and manpower, Really, it was the disease that determined when the Wallapai War came to an end, not being overpowered militarily. Which makes this short and brutal conflict definitely worth our time and attention. So, when we eventually return our attention back to Cochise and Geronimo, remember that it's not like they were the only Amerindians out there giving the American invaders a headache. But we won't be turning our attention back to the Apache quite yet. Mainly because it is now the late 1860s, and we have to follow the story to the Salt River Valley, and look at the founding of a little farming settlement on the site of old Hohokam Canals, which would eventually rise to become Phoenix. But I want to end today with a programming note. Consider this your official notice that in a few weeks, 
I'm going to up and disappear for a month and a half. Now, I promise you that I have a good, possibly the best excuse for this disappearance. You see, between starting the podcast and now, I somehow managed to meet, date, fall in love with, and propose to an amazing woman who I will be marrying in June. And I don't know if you know this or not, but weddings are complicated things that take a whole lot of planning. Add to this the fact that the marriage means that I'll have to move, and, well, let's just say that it's a wonderful but hectic experience. So what does this mean for our continuing narrative? Never fear, because we still have so much I want to talk about, and the fiancé is very supportive of my weekly historical nerding out. My current plan is to continue releasing a new episode every week through the end of May. After that, however, I'm going to move, get married, go on my honeymoon, and get settled again. And that means June is just out. Plus, it'll take me a few weeks to get my bearings, so the first half of July is gone as well. So I plan to start back up again in the back half of July, though I haven't set an exact date yet. And yet, well, that's the plan. But remember, expect a new weekly episode in your feed through the end of May, and then I'll be back in July once my feet are again planted on solid ground. As for now, I'm off to find out what wedding planning detail I'm currently forgetting about. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.